Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew 23, we're going to go through verse 16. We're going to go from verse 16 to verse 28. This passage of scripture will encompass the fourth through the seventh woe against the Pharisees spoken by Jesus on that momentous Tuesday of Passion Week, three days before he was murdered on Good Friday. This is part of the eight woes I said. Some people say there's seven woes. It depends on whether you include verse 14. There's a manuscript problem there. It's dubious. The NIV leaves it out. The Holman Christian Study Bible brackets it. I'm going to assume it's in there, and so we'll, we'll have eight woes instead of seven woes. So here's the fourth woe, starting with verse 16 through 17. Woe to you, blind guides. Jesus is still dumping on the Pharisees. Woe to you, blind guides. Think about that. A guide who was blind is not going to get you very far. He's going to lead you into a wall or over a cliff. He's going to kill you. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever takes an oath by the sanctuary, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gold of the sanctuary is bound by his oath. Now what Jesus is referring to there is a Pharisee who would take an oath. I'll promise to pay back the loan. I promise I swear by the sanctuary. But in his mind, he's really thinking, well, that doesn't mean anything because according to our rules, you have to swear by the gold of the sanctuary in order to be bound. So when it comes time to pay back the loan, he says, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to pay you back because I swore by the sanctuary. That doesn't mean anything. But I didn't swear by the gold of the sanctuary. If I had have sworn by the gold of the sanctuary, I'd pay you back. Now, of course, this is the kind of trickery that the unsuspecting recipient of the vow doesn't understand or doesn't know, and it basically means that the Pharisee is committing fraud, and they would do this all the time. Jesus continues in verse 17, blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the sanctuary that sanctified the gold. In other words, the distinction means nothing. The gold is valuable that the Pharisees swear by, but how about the temple that contains the gold? That's pretty valuable too. So both vows ought to be valid but neither one but but one of but the Pharisees' vow is not valid because he's a lion schemester, a scam artist. Jesus calls him a blind calls them blind fools. Now you know in Matthew five twenty two, Jesus said he who calls somebody rocker calls somebody a fool is guilty of hellfire. That was talking about somebody who with anger and malice or forethought calls somebody a fool. But here Jesus is stating the plain, simple fact. They are blind fools. He's not doing this out of malice. This is no more malice than if you told a sinner that he, if he doesn't accept Jesus, he is in danger of hellfire. He's in danger of going to hell. Do you do that because you hate him or do you do that because you love him? Because you're trying to warn him. Same thing here. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, objectively, they are blind and they are fools. All right, so much for the, that's the fourth woe. Let's now go to the the next woe, which, excuse me, we're still on the fourth woe. Matthew 23, verses 18 through 20. Jesus continues in verse 18. Also, whoever takes an oath by the altar, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gift that is on it is bound by his oath. This is what the Pharisees were doing. I swear by the altar, I'm going to pay you back. Comes time to repay the loan. Oh, I'm so sorry. I was supposed to swear by the the sacrifice that was on the altar, the oxen or the sheep or whatever. I did. I failed to do that. So therefore, my vow was no good. Therefore, I'm not going to pay you back. Again, same kind of game playing by the tricky, by the tricky, devious, dishonest Pharisees. Verse 19. Blind people. For which is greater, the gift on the or the altar that sanctifies the gift? How can you say that it makes a difference whether you whether you take a vow by the gift or the altar that holds the gift. 
There's no difference. Both oaths should be binding. If you just make an oath by the altar, well, it should be binding because the altar is the thing that holds the gift, the thing that you say is so valuable that is that is valuable enough to bind me on my oath, that gift. Well, that gift is valuable, all right, but so is the altar that holds the gift. So both vows should be valid. Therefore, verse 20, the one who takes an oath by the altar takes an oath by it and everything on it. In other words, quit making these silly meaningless distinctions without a difference. Now, Exodus 29 verse 37 says this, For seven days you must make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. The altar will become especially holy. Whoever touches the altar will become holy. So the law itself even said the altar was holy. The Pharisees were not. And once again, the Pharisees are denying the law of Moses. They do this all the time. The altar is actually greater than the gift. And yet the Pharisees said for an oath to be valid, you got to swear by the gift rather than the altar. Although the Old Testament in which they were supposed to be experts, the Old Testament said the altar was greater than the gift. So the Pharisees, once again, are exposed as anti-Moses hypocrites. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says in verse 18, whoever takes an oath by the altar, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gift, it, it is bound by his oath. It sounds like he's saying that it's true. He, he says that making distinctions like that don't matter. But it also says, it sounds like he's saying it's okay to take an oath as long as you don't make these silly distinctions. In other words, the oath on the altar is a binding oath. There's nothing wrong with the oath. Now, the, the problem with that is that in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has this expression, I tell you, don't take an oath at all. So the controversy arises, the swearing, taking an oath, is it wrong per se in itself? Or what is Jesus rather meaning it's wrong to take a rash oath or a devious oath, a false oath, a fake oath. What is he denouncing? Well, let's read the passage in Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Jesus says this, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne or by the earth because it is his footstool or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. And again, Jesus is here referring to all the different types of ways Pharisees took oaths and making distinctions that, and so that they could avoid their oaths. So that makes it sound like he's complaining about false oaths, but that phrase, don't take an oath at all, sounds like he's making a stand against any oath, a true oath as well as a false oath. False oath. And the verse 37 also sounds like that also because he says here, but let your word yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Well, I'll tell you right now, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking oaths. I think it's a misinterpretation by people of the Amish-type persuasion who say that it's wrong to take any oath at all. Here is some scripture that shows that the Old Testament oaths were perfectly okay, and it's just hard for me to believe that something that happened over and over and over again in the Old Testament, there's something wrong with it. And then when you get to the New Testament, you see God himself taking an oath, and then you see Paul taking an oath, which I'll show you. And you see Jesus taking an oath, for that matter. So when you put, put, get all that evidence together, it makes me think to a reasonable certitude that Jesus is saying, don't take these fake oaths. He's not complaining about true oaths. All right, let's look at the Old Testament where oaths are perfectly okay. Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man makes a vow to the Lord, when you make a vow, you're making an oath, you're, you're swearing. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. The law there didn't make the oath invalid. It says that the oath must be performed, which is exactly the opposite of invalidity. It's showing that the oath was a valid oath, something that's perfectly okay 
perfectly justified. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it will be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. Again, pay your vows. Nothing wrong with it. Deuteronomy 23, 23, You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed, or taken an oath, to the Lord your God, which you have promised. You must be careful to perform that oath. Exodus 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, what this is referring to, it's not talking about cussing, what we generally take in the name of the Lord God in vain. We almost always think cussing, but what it actually originally meant was don't swear by God when you don't mean to carry out your oath, your promise, your vow. And so uh, Moses here says don't make a false oath, basically. Which is, per, which is what Jesus says in the New Testament. But you see all these other good oaths, Jesus says you're supposed to carry them out. Numbers 30, verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord, takes an oath to the Lord, or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So here's a vow to the Lord or an oath to somebody else. Both vows to God and vows to somebody else. And Numbers 30 in the law were enforceable and perfectly all right. Psalms 15, 4. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. There, a man who keeps his vows is said to be a good man. He fears the Lord. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 through 6. When you make a vow to God, an oath, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow, which you make an oath to pay. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Nothing wrong with taking a vow. Nothing wrong with not vowing either, but if you do do it, you should perform your vow. The vow is not made void because of, of its illegality. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now let's go to the New Testament, Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 17. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Swore? That means take an oath. Saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So there we have God himself making an oath. Now, if oaths are sinful and God, you could say, well, God is God. He can take an oath. Sinful men can't. But the problem with this is Jesus himself took an oath. When, while he was incarnate as a human being. Our example, the redeemed, the first redeemed man of the new redeemed humanity, Jesus Christ. Matthew 26, verses 63 through 64. This is when Jesus was before that kangaroo court, before the high priest, either at his house or, the, or in the Sanhedrin, I can't remember, but it was uh, at the end there, right before the Romans crucified him. Verse 63, but Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Now, what does that adjure mean? It means, I am asking you to take an oath under penalty of perjury. I am asking you to take a legal oath. You tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, what did Jesus do? Did he say, no, it's a sin for me to take an oath? No, he said, you have said it yourself, which is basically saying, yeah, I am, I will. Nevertheless, I tell you, you will see the Son of Man sitting in the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus answered this question from a judicial official under oath. And by the way, I've done some reading on this. That there's a distinction too between private oaths to take a to pay a, a loan, for example, and an official oath, like you swear that you will perform your duty under arms in the military, or you're in court and you make, and you swear. 
That's that's different than taking a private oath. But even a private oath, if it's done privately, it ought to be one that's true and not fake, like the Pharisees were doing. I don't see anything wrong with doing either one, a judicial oath or a private oath, as long as it manifests a true intention of the promisor to perform his promise. Now we'll look at where Paul took an oath, Acts 18.18. 18. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him were... Priscilla and Aquila in Syncria. Syncria is the port city of Corinth in Greek. In Syncria, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. So Paul swore that he was going to keep some kind of uh, vow, maybe a Nazarite vow, whatever. But he did. He swore. So there's nothing wrong with swearing or taking an oath in the New Testament. So from that, all that evidence, I would say that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, don't take a false oath when he says, no, don't take an oath at all. Don't take a false oath at all. Don't do it. Verse 21 and 22, the one who takes an oath by the sanctuary, Jesus continues, takes an oath by it and him who dwells in it. And this is referring to the Pharisees. I swear by the sanctuary, I'll pay you back. But, oh, I didn't swear by the gold of the sanctuary, therefore I don't have to pay. By the way, the gold of the sanctuary could be the gold that was laid over the wood in the structure of the building, or it could have been the golden vessels that were in the sanctuary, the, the, the seven-stemmed candelabra, for example. Or it could be the gold that was donated to the temple for its repair, a korban, when people made gifts that they couldn't take back to the temple. It could have been any of that. It doesn't matter really what it is, but the point is you don't need to swear by the gold because once you swear by the sanctuary, you're swearing by God who lives in the sanctuary, and you can't swear any higher than God, and God expects you to keep your vow. Verse 22, and the one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by him who sits on it. This is what the Pharisees would do. They'd say, I swear by heaven I'll pay you back. Well, heaven's a euphemism for God, and so they would, and the Jews were used to that kind of euphemism. So the person who lent the money says, well, he's swearing by God. He swore by heaven. He swore by God. Comes time to pay him back. Pharisee says, nope, didn't swear by God. I only swore by heaven. Heaven's not the same thing as God. I'm not going to pay you. And Jesus says, no, you swear by heaven. You swear by the God who sits on the throne in heaven. Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. There's another woe. It's the fifth one, the fifth woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and come in, yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Now, Jesus here is not saying it's wrong to do the small matters of the law. In fact, he says you shouldn't neglect the others, the small matters of the law, the law, the less important matters. And by the way, when he says more important, he implies that it's less important. He implies that there is a distinction in the importance of the laws. The Christian myth that you hear all the time, all laws are the same. There's no difference. That is a half-truth. They're all the same in one aspect, in that breaking a little law will get you into hell just as fast as breaking a big one. Maybe not as deep in hell, but you'll still go to hell. So they're equal in that sense, but they're not equal in their temporal effects. As I say, would you rather somebody shoplift from your store or rape your wife? You tell me that there's no difference in the law. All right, with that background, let's look at what Jesus is referring to. He's referring to the Pharisees practicing of You've got to pay a tenth of your mint, your dill, and cumin. All three of these are spices. I'm not a botanist and I'm not a gourmet cook. I don't know different one spice from another. Even if I ate it, I couldn't tell the difference, so I'm not going to worry about it. You can look that up on Wikipedia and get a nice picture or on the Internet. But basically, they're all spices and they're very, very small. So the point here is you tithe on the very smallest of things, but the very big things in the law, justice, mercy, and faith, those are obviously large concepts. You just ignore that. 
saying that they're hypocrites. That's what he called them in verse 23. You hypocrites, you hypocrites. By the way, the law never says to tithe, mint, dill, and cumin. The law in Leviticus 27.30 says this, Every tenth of the land's produce, grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and is holy to the Lord. So you were supposed to tithe on grain and fruit, grain that grows in the field and fruit that grows on the trees. Yes, you were supposed to tithe on that, but the law didn't have any particular produce in mind. But, of course, the Pharisees, they got, the Pharisees have got to define everything down to the smallest particular and complain when you don't, you got a little private garden back there and you grew a little bit of mint. Oh, you didn't give a tenth of the mint to the, to the temple and it's worth about a farthing or a penny. That's the fifth woe. We're still on the fifth woe here. Matthew 23, verse 24. Blind guides. He uses that phrase over and over again. A guide that's blind is going to lead you over a cliff or into a wall or into the oncoming traffic and you're going to get killed. Don't follow the Pharisees. Now, of course, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees now, but everybody else is listening. You strain out a gnat, yet gulp down a camel. A gnat was the smallest unclean animal there was that they knew about because it was a four-legged animal, a four-legged insect, and it was therefore unclean. So you strain out this unclean gnat, yet gulp down a camel. A camel was also clean. The difference being between a camel and a gnat is a camel is a big unclean animal. Now, what was Jesus referring to? The strict Pharisee would carefully strain his drinking water through a cloth. You put a cloth over a vessel, pour the water through the cloth, the water sinks through the cloth, there's no way a gnat can get through it. Because he's not going to swallow a gnat, because if he swallowed a gnat, it would make him unclean. Now, of course, you swallow a gnat, that's not going to hurt anybody, physically. But Levitically, or ritually, it would make him ritually unclean. And so the strict Pharisee wouldn't do it. And it's the same thing with wine, he did the same thing. Vinegar, anything else he drank, he would strain it through a cloth. So that's what Jesus is referring to. John Gill quotes a rabbi. John Gill, of course, is a rabbinic expert. This rabbi said this, quote, One that eats a flea or a gnat, they say, an apostate. So in other words, you, you ate a gnat, a gnat, you would apostatize from the Jewish religion, which, of course, is absurd. This is another example of how the rabbis took the law and expanded it into absurdity. Here's the, the law from Moses, Leviticus 11.20. All winged insects that walk on all fours are to be detestable to you. Leviticus 11.23, all other winged insects that have four feet are to be detestable to you. By the way, I need to point out here that the scripture here says insects have four legs, and a skeptic might say, see there, the Bible's got an error in it. Actually, it's talking about the walking legs of an insect. Insects generally have four legs, which are used for walkings. For example, a fly has four legs, his back four legs he walks with, and the other, his front two legs, he picks things up and holds it over his head. So no skeptics, no liberal Protestants, no people, errantists, the Bible does not have errors in it. Leviticus 11:41 through 42. All the creatures that swarm on the earth are detestable. They must not be eaten. Do not eat any of the creatures that swarm on the earth. Anything that moves on its belly or walks on all fours or on many feet for their detestable. These are the, the laws that Jesus, that the Pharisees were interpreting, and so what they would do is go to extreme lengths to make sure they didn't drink on that, and then they went to extreme lengths to talk about what the consequences of drinking on that were. You become an apostate? No, all the law says you become unclean. Well, you become unclean, you become clean again. People became unclean all the time in the Old Testament law, and then they go through a ritual, maybe washing with water and ablution, wait seven days, so forth. There's all kinds of ways you can become clean, but no, the rabbis have got to take it further than Moses. No, you're going to apostate. You're going to hell because you, you swallowed a gnat. 
So that's the kind of narrow-minded, pig-headed, obstinate stupidity Jesus was dealing with with these Pharisees. Matthew 23, verse 25. Woe to you. Here's another woe. This is the sixth one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Once again, he calls them hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. The cups are full of greed and self-indulgence, indulgence, even though they're clean on the outside. This, of course, really refers to hypocrisy. When people look good and holy and righteous, but inside in their heart, which you can't see, greed, self-indulgence. Here's a scripture in Mark, which refers to what the Pharisees would do, their practice. When they come from the marketplace, this is Mark 7, verse 4. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed and there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, jugs, copper utensils, and dining couches. They would even wash the seats they were sitting on. Wash, 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 wash. So they could be clean, 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 clean. But it's all hypocrisy because they were SOBs on the inside. The they there is full of greed and, and self-indulgence. That refers to the cups and dishes. But those are symbolic, of course, of the Pharisees. In Luke 11, verse 39... Jesus directly refers to the Pharisees, not metaphorically. He says, but the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and evil. This was at another time. This wasn't in the last Passion Week. But it was, I think it was at a time when he was eating with a Pharisee. I can't remember. But the point is, is that Jesus directly said that the Pharisees are full of greed and evil. And here he says that the cups which symbolize the Pharisees are full of greed and self-indulgence. Feeding their flesh becoming bloated in their own self-importance and their arrogance and their pride. Matthew 23, verse 26, still on the sixth woe here. Blind Pharisee, calls them blind again. They don't see spiritual things. First clean the inside of the cup. In other words, get rid of your sin. First clean the inside of the cup so the outside of it may also become clean. Now this is something that is obvious, the meaning of it. But as something I've noticed, if you notice people who are really sinning real bad, let's say you've got these um, drug addicts, people... Maybe they're in motorcycle gangs, selling drugs, pimping prostitutes, that kind of stuff, and they get saved. And all of a sudden, they start taking showers. They cut their hair. They start saying, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, <laughs> because the outside reflects the inside. You can, you can hypocritically hide it for a while. And I know sometimes the tattoos won't come off because it's too late and that kind of thing. But still, it, it, it's interesting that once God starts cleaning up the inside of a person, the outside a lot of times starts conforming to the inside. But at any rate, that, that might be true, but the opposite is oftentimes not true. You can make the outside look shiny and bright, but actually it's hypocrisy because the inside is so dirty. All right, now we turn to the seventh woe in verses 27 and 28 in Matthew 3. Jesus continues, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! He continuously calls them hypocrites, one after the other. I can imagine by now they're getting pretty steamed, pretty abashed, pretty ashamed, pretty angry, full of bitterness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and every impurity. This woe is very much like the, the clean dish and the dirty inside of the dish. Here we have a clean tomb and the dirty inside of the tomb. Why was it filled with impurity? Because... In the Levitical law, nothing could be more unclean than a corpse. And so, in the same way, Jesus continues in verse 28, On the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, greed and self-indulgence. In the previous woe, in this woe, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You do not keep the law of Moses, which you profess to honor so much. Now, why were 
tombs whitewashed back then. What was Jesus referring to? Well, tombs were whitewashed so they could be easily seen. That would keep people from stepping on a tomb and thereby inadvertently defiling himself, according to the law, especially at night or at dusk when it's dark. It's hard to see the tomb. The tomb whitewashing was done once a year on a certain day, and sometimes they would not only whitewash them to make them noticeable so you wouldn't step on them, but also to beautify them. And so it, it, these whitewashed tombs made a perfect metaphor, beautiful on the outside, but full of death on the inside. Now, it says that these tombs, these Pharisees, were full of dead men's bones and every impurity. What kind of impurity would be on the inside of a tomb? Well, ritual impurity, of course, because death meant ritual impurity. But it also could refer to physical impurity. And John Gill says this in his inimitable language, quote, worms and rottenness, which arise from the putrefied carcasses and are very nauseous and defiling. That's a good description of the Pharisees, was it not? Now, on the outside, how did the Pharisees make themselves look white, shiny, and holy, and righteous to the public? Well, they wore those broad phylacteries on their arms and on their forehead, those wooden boxes, or those boxes with the scriptures in. They enlarged the tassels on their garments so that people would know. Those tassels, which were, of course, provided for in the law to remind people of the law and to keep the law. But instead, the Pharisees put those tassels on their garments so everybody would be reminded of the Pharisees and how righteous they were. They prayed long prayers. They had this rabbinic idea that the longer the prayer, the more holy the person was. Jesus said they would compass land and sea in order to make one proselyte, and the proselyte ends up twice a citizen of hell than the Pharisee was. They would tie little tiny spice herbs and they would ostentatiously fast, going around saying, I'm fasting today because I'm a holy man. And that kind of nonsense. Horrible spirituality. Horrible spiritual atmosphere for Jesus' early disciples. Tombs were, of course, noted, were used as a metaphor standing for spiritual corruption. In Psalms 5, verses 9, the psalmist says this, For there's nothing reliable in what they say, meaning non-believers, Destruction is within them. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. So the, the throat of an unbelieving blasphemer, blasphemer against God is, is compared to an open grave. And, of course, that's a famous verse because it's quoted by Paul in Romans 3.13. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. I guess tombs all the time, a lot of times had snakes living in there. I would think a snake would like living in a tomb. And so it's a perfect symbolism of the spiritual condition of the Pharisees. All right, so much for the seventh woe. Now we are going to hold the eighth woe until the next audio, and we will and we will finish up the Jesus' teaching on Tuesday of Passion Week, and then in Matthew 24, Jesus will go back to the Mount of Olives and give the famous Olivet Discourse, one of the most misunderstood passages of Scripture in the history of the Bible, I think. And we'll have a good discussion of that. So I hope you enjoyed this audio and see you next time.